is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. Today we meet another of our sports pioneers. Graham Mackerath is the founder of Piranha Kayaks and the owner of Piranha and P&H. Graham's an inductee into the International Whitewater Hall of Fame and another true pioneer in the sport. Today he's going to give us an insider's view into the history of Piranha and P&H and their early designs and safety features and how they stay true to their mission. A big thank you goes out to my friend Christopher Lockyer. Chris referred Graham way back in the early days of Paddling the Blue when he was on episode number 7. Well, Graham's been a tough person to reach, but his interview was definitely worth the wait. As a reminder from the last episode, we are running our anniversary contest once again. It's our second anniversary this time. In the last episode, I promised that those who answered the hidden question correctly would be entered to win a $50 gift card from our good friends at Level 6. Well, we pulled that winner, and the winner from episode number 54 is Bruce Holland from the USA. So congratulations, Bruce. I will be in touch. So here's how you can win our next $50 gift card, again, courtesy of Level 6. Somewhere in this episode, I'll ask a question about an episode. If you know the answer, just go to www.paddlingtheblue.com, visit this episode's page, and answer the question. You'll need to get your answer in by Wednesday, March 9, 2022, and I'll announce the winner of this episode's Level 6 gift card in episode 56, which releases on March 14, 2022. So with that, enjoy today's episode with Graham Macarith. Hello, Graham. How are you today? I'm fine. Fine. Thank you very much. All right, fantastic. Thank you very much for joining me. I certainly appreciate it. It's been a while that we've been attempting to get in touch with each other, so I, I do appreciate your, your support. So, Graham, tell us a little bit about how you got your start as a paddler. Well, I was at school in the south of England uh, at Abingdon, and uh, I was invited one day to the launching of a canvas kayak that my friend had built with his father. And so I went along and uh, I had a great day and I was very motivated and came back and after a little while I started pestering my father and he lent me 11 pounds to buy a used kayak. And that's how I got started. So that started the love affair with paddling from there. So at what age? Oh, I'd be 15, 14 or 15 at that time. Okay. And I was in the Scouts, the Boy Scouts. And a lot of my friends came out with me and then they got a kayak. And we started doing a bit of racing in the Scouts. Uh, and then, as coincidence would have it, my first proper race was the John Chase Trophy <laughs> on Windermere. I won the under-16s, and we were motivated to do some more races. So we started racing around the country, um, mostly doing long-distance races and sprint races. Then we got to know more people, and it all grew from there. All right. Well, I guess I, I, guess I'm, uh, I inspired a race. <laughs> yes, so it seems. <laughs> So, so racing took you uh, took you all over. Now, it was slalom racing, is that correct? No, slalom came later. Um, it was sprint and marathon, mostly, in those days. Later on, we uh, were out on the canal and we met two other people paddling uh, who were into slalom. And so we formed a canoe section at Grappen Hall Athletic Club. And they took us to slalom and river races. We took them to sprint and marathons. So, sprint and marathon through summer, 
slalom in the autumn, river racing in the winter. And that took you to the Olympics, is that correct? Yes, eventually, yeah. A couple of world championships before that. And then I went to Munich in 72 to the K2 sprint. Congratulations. Thank you. Yes, and then, so that all led to the founding of Piranha. Well, kind of. When I left school, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. Oh, that's not totally true. When I left school, I was the non-traveling reserve for the Mexico Olympics uh, at a time when I was doing my A-levels. And I was one grade short to become a pilot in what is now British Airways. And it was go back to school for another year or do something else. And my father suggested accountancy, which I'd never given any thought to. And it took me two years to find out that accountancy wasn't for me. Eventually, I decided to bail out. And I wasn't alone in planning my escape. One of my friends had two piranha fish in a little tank in the office. And on Friday night, he forgot to feed them the goldfish. And we came in on Saturday, on the Monday morning, to find just one piranha fish and a dorsal fin. And so I thought, what a, what a great idea for a business. What a great name for a business. So that's how the, the name came to be. So that was 1971. So I, I did go to the games in 72, but uh, by then most of my time was taken up with uh, Piranha and trying to get it off the ground. All right, so the, uh, the, the paddling world is better off for you bailing out of accounting. <laughs> I'm not sure the accounting world to think about that, but I know I'm, I'm a lot better off for having bailed out. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about the founding of Piranha and, and how, that, how that came about while well, you, you gave us the, uh, the history of the name. Uh, but what, okay. what were the early days like? It started out of racing. Uh, we went to Spain in 1968 and we met a, an Austrian on the beach who had this white water racer that seemed a lot more competitive than the boats we had back home. So my friend Norman Jackson did a deal to buy this boat and part of the deal was he would let us uh, take a mold off it and build some for ourselves. So that's what we did. And we were pretty successful, Norman particularly. And uh, we were winning most of the river races. And so we had other people, or I had a friend in particular from Scotland uh, who wanted to borrow the mould. And so I said no, because I wasn't sure whether it would get damaged. And so I said, well, I wouldn't loan him the mould, but I would build some boats for him. And so this was all at the same time that I was planning on escaping. So, so my first order was for six of these Meyer Phantom Mark III river races for Glasgow University. Then other people started to hear that I was building boats and they wanted some and and it all started from there. All right, and that was from that one, one mold that you borrowed? Yes. Okay. Yes, and of course then we had to have other designs in the range. So we built a slalom boat, which was commercially the uh, most active part of the market at that time and uh, also then I built a K1, a marathon K1 and the guy I went to Munich with uh, was third in the senior national championships 
and uh, a friend was first in the junior national championships the first that first year so the range expanded and you know we've always focused on trying to make the best kayak and most competitive kayak that we can and it's the same philosophy that keeps us going today do you remember the name of that first design well the first design was the trident one well it was the trident became the mark one when we did the mark two okay (laughs) and then you pioneered a number of design innovations regarding safety yes i think we're fairly good listeners Back in those days, there were a number of incidents. Sometimes people uh, just had a nasty incident and occasionally one or two people lost their lives. And wherever we could, we tried to learn from that and try to innovate our way out of it. And so, particularly when we got to the polyethylene stage in the early 80s, we designed longer cockpits to make getting in and out a lot easier. Back in those days, everybody was um, paranoid about the potential for uh, boats getting pinned and entrapment. And so we then developed a safety cage system to ensure that the boat couldn't collapse on somebody and so they could get their, make their way out. And again, the key, keyhole cockpit is one of the key innovations that we had. And then we were the first to uh, adjust the backrest of the thigh grip so again you could let let the tension and that go to again make it easy to get in and out of but, you know, it's also much more convenient too um, and so there have been a number of uh, innovations over the years where we've tried to um, improve uh, the product yep. some made it into production <coughs> others didn't at, at one stage we had a boat with a completely removable deck so you just had a, the whole deck system was on the cleat and if you let the cleat go then the deck would float away and you could get out and effectively that was the world's first sit on top because it predated um, ocean kayaks and everybody else getting into it but I hadn't realized uh, how successful sit on tops would be at the time so the first adjustable seating as well. So how did you how did you develop your your engineering prowess? I guess just by looking, listening. You know, I'm not particularly an engineer. I I understand certain aspects, um, but my brother's a mechanical engineer, and my father was a civil engineer. But uh, I was the one that didn't go into engineering. So perhaps there were some of these things happening around me at the time. Yeah. So you mentioned a, a good listener and good observation skills of, of what's happening around you to figure out how do we solve this particular problem. Yes. And then uh, Piranha continued along to uh, acquire P&H. Tell yes. us about how that came about. Well, we always got on very well with uh, P&H. And P&H was, was run by uh, a really nice chap called Dave Patrick. Dave sometimes was a competitor Sometimes he molded some of our designs under license, but he was a he was a good builder, but he wasn't an innovator. After some time, um, well, early two thousands, I think it was two thousand and three, two thousand and four, Dave decided he wanted to retire. So he rang me up one day and said, "Was I interested in keeping his team employed?" So I said, "Yes." So we came to a, an agreement and, and we took over the P&H brand. We had been making sea kayaks before that. 
So we weren't new into sea kayaks, but, but we certainly weren't sea kayak specialists. So we were able to combine the skills that we had at Derby with our own skills. And um, so boats like Cetus and Scorpio were um, the boats that um, came out of the, the joining of our two brands, two co companies together. Now, I'm guessing the P in P&H stands for Patrick. What's the H? Yes. I'm going to say it was Henderson or something like that, but whoever it was didn't last longer than a few months. <laughs> uh, so I don't know who the H I don't I never met the H, I don't think. Ah, still um, a mystery. Yes, <laughs> still a mystery. <laughs> All right. So can you give us a little insider's look into what happens at the Piranha P&H factory to, uh, to build a boat? Well... The composite boats are made in Derby, um, where P&H has always, has always been. And a number of people there have been there a long time. There is a, a really good team of skilled craftsmen. Piranha is where the polyethylene kayaks are built. So we have some ovens over here, uh, and we have a large facility which is tailor-made for building high quality polyethylene kayaks you know we're not like a number of brands do who trade mold or have their shells trade molded you know we like to do everything ourselves and so we have very highly specialized ovens which we designed ourselves we've programmed the computers ourselves so that they're totally optimized optimized to make the highest quality of kayak not to make it as fast as possible as a trade mold would do. And these are long tube ovens with small doors on the end into which the mold is inserted. And then the whole oven rocks and then it rotates inside that, all controlled by computers. And we were the first company in the world to computerize a roto molding machine. Then after a period of time, let's call it about half an hour, because it varies depending on uh, the type of construction and the materials used. So it's in, in the oven for about half an hour, then goes into cooling again for about half an hour. Then after that, the, boat, the shell is taken out, mold recharged, and then it goes back into the system. So these are all, it's all on a conveyor belt. And so it's, it's fully optimized and once you press the button, it's fully automated. So we can repeat the process time and time again, and there's no variability in it. So you'll make an entire boat from start to finish um, in a half hour? No. Okay. Half an hour heating, half an hour cooling. So the shell is made in one hour. But, but then, of course, it then has to go into finishing to have the seat, hatches, trimmed, bulkheads, and everything else done. So, but the actual just, shell just takes about that time. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And how many boats will you produce in an average day? Well, at the moment we're we're manufacturing about just over three hundred a week. Okay. And and then the composite. What does that process look like? Uh, very different. You know, most of the boats these days are resin infusion. So, basically, you lay the uh, reinforcing materials into the boat and then the resin, predetermined amount of resin, which is pre-catalyzed, is infused into a bagging system, 
uh, over it so that the, um, the vacuum pressure uh, pulls the resin through, uh, impregnates the material and uh, gives you an optimised resin to reinforcement ratio. So you make a half a boat that way, it's a hollow or a deck. And then the two halves are joined together using a system of, um, of cloth and small amount of mat to give it optimum strength. And of course, we're using a variety of different materials. So we use glass fiber, a polyester fabric called Dealin, Kevlar, carbon fiber, and then we use a combination of different resin systems. Mostly it's polyester or vinyl ester. Occasionally we use poxy. Uh, and we do occasionally build um, some sea kayaks in full prepreg, but they tend to be a little bit too light to perform very well and they're certainly very noisy. So we use a combination of different materials and methods uh, to, again, make the best possible kayak that we can do. All right, and I'm, I'm certain that that process takes longer than an hour. Oh, yes, <laughs> yes. It's 20, 20 to 25 hours at least uh, per boat, just depend because we completely customize them. Sure. Um, people can have whatever colors, whatever combinations, whatever deck designs, uh, keel strips. You know, there's a whole host of extras that people can have. Um, we used to sort of joke it takes some, most people about two years to make their mind up as to exactly what they want <laughs> in terms of the spec. Um, but you know, the key thing is that we can give people whatever they want um, and that's uh, almost a unique service within the sea kite world and people do take their time and come up with exactly what they want and uh, it's, it's fantastic some of the um, you know, beautiful boats that people come up with and combinations of colour and fittings that uh, I wouldn't have thought of, but they often come out you know, quite exceptionally. And we have a great team of craftsmen over there who who really can do a fantastic job of finishing these boats off. So it's, it's wonderful to, to see it coming together over there. Yeah, the, the customizing tool on, uh, on the P&H website is fantastically fun. Good. <laughs> now, somebody Good. told me once that there was like 64,000 different combinations that uh, you can come up with for... Making the boat. <laughs> uh, I don't know, <laughs> but, but, but I know it's a scary amount. There are some things you don't want to go and count. <laughs> it's it, it becomes a it's a nightmare for the uh, for our marketing and IT teams from okay. time to time. <laughs> so how many how many folks work in the uh, in each of the two locations? Uh, there's about. 70 of us. Uh, that includes a small number of people out of our U.S. office in uh, Tennessee. Tell us about the naming process that you go through to, for both. <laughs> oh, well, naming either comes really easily or really quickly. Uh, and sometimes it's just wonderful. Uh, someone comes up with an idea and you know, we, all get, we all just talk about it and go for it and, and that's great but if it doesn't come quickly it could be a nightmare and then you 
course, you've got the fact that the English language is used by most countries around the world, uh, and they all have their own nuances and innuendos. So you can decide on a name, but you don't know whether it's going to be a margarine in Germany or it's going to be a rather foul expression in another part of the world. So I'll tell you a little story about one of the uh, one of the first names that we didn't get quite right. So fairly soon after we got started, probably about 1974, I got fed up of listening to the British team complaining that they were getting German designs, which really were the best of the world at the time, a year behind the, the German team. And so they would go to a world championship or whatever, and they were always in last year's boats. So it wasn't very good for them psych psychologically. And so we were growing and I thought it was time that we made a seriously competitive boat. But because German designs were so important, uh, we decided it had to have a German name. So my younger brother, who was doing his O-levels at school, be about 15 or 16, I guess, I spoke to him because I didn't speak German, and said, we needed a name. So he thought about it for a little while and then said, Fadel. Fadel, what's Fadel? So he says, well, it's a skiing term for sweeping in out the slalom poles. I thought, fantastic. So we call this new boat the Fadel. And we had a couple of the top British paddlers um, paddling it, and we went to an international in Germany. And the German team would come past this boat sitting on the bank and they would all laugh. And I kept looking at my boat and I looked at the German boats and felt that we were pretty competitive really. I didn't see why they would be laughing. So there was a German coach that I knew and he came past and I said, so Gerhard, why is everybody laughing at the boat? So he said, oh, it's not the boat, it's the name. So. I said, what's wrong with the name? thought it was a term for sweeping in and out of slalom poles. So he burst out laughing. He said, ah, you spelt it wrong. <laughs> so we'd, we'd spent it, spelt it V-E-D-E-L, and that should be W-E-D-E-L. So he said, the way you've spelt it is a feather duster. <laughs> so... It doesn't sound so, as fierce. Uh, <laughs> yes. So the feather duster did quite well. It, 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 it became sixth and seventh in the World Championships that year. And and that sent, set us on our way. Um, and the next World Championships in, in Austria, Albert Kerr won in our first World Championship winning boat, which was a fantastic day. Did you change the name after that or did you just keep the name? Uh, we changed the model. <laughs> in those days, we'd probably change the design pretty much every year. We'd come out with a new design. As it was a period of fast innovation. And the only way that we could compete against the Germans was to out-innovate them, which is what we set out to do. Making the best boat possible. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So I know you follow a theme with the P&H naming. Tell us about that. Yes. Well, something's just happened. PH started with one or two designs, um, such as Capella, um, to give them star galaxy cluster names. And so we've been following that theme. 
So hence we have uh, Cetus, Scorpio, Delphine, Aries, and now we're into Volan, uh, Virgo. So it was just something that was started before we got there and we kind of liked it and, uh, and we're still doing it. And do you follow any sort of, uh, any sort of theme with Piranha? We tend to follow themes for a while and then start something fresh. Haven't done as consistently for a while. Although in the early days of polyethylene, um, our first design, polyethylene design was the freestyle. And then the second one, we spent all our money building this oven and building these molds. And there's a lot of capital investment involved in all this. And uh, we made some fiberglass polo boats, which don't know if many people know about it, but it's, there's a game a bit like water polo, but in kayaks called canoe polo. And I'd sold some of these fiberglass boats to a college. And six months or so after I'd sold them, uh, I went to the college and happened to go past the swimming pool where these boats were kept. And I couldn't believe how badly they had been treated and trashed in the six months since I'd built them. And so we thought, well, it's, it'd be a small mold to make a, a polo boat. And um, all the polo boats tended to be called BATS, short for BATS Advanced Trainer. So the ones that we had sold them were BAT Mark 5s. So because these were roto-molded, we call this boat the Roto-Bat. And orders went through the roof as soon as it was released. We went some, something like an 18, 20-week waiting list within a week. Um, clearly hit a spot. We thought this was going to be highly successful in swimming pools and we thought it might be a bit of fun in white water so we made a white water version and that became a cult boat. A lot of people bought them to go and paddle rivers in North Wales like the Troarin and then we took them to World Slalom Championship and some German paddlers picked it up and just loved them and so we were exporting a lot of these boats to to Germany in white water spec and we were talking to the paddlers there and I said well what boat should we build next so they said well the rotor bat's fantastic now we want one for the mountains so we must call it the mountain bat so so we did and when we came to the next design, which I can't remember which one it was, but I think it, was, it could have been the Magic. We wanted to build this both. We've got to call it the Magic. And they said, no, you must call it the Magic Bat. So everything suddenly became a bat. <laughs> so then there was the Stunt Bat and then Mountain Bat Mark II. And there was a long list of boats that we called Bat, even though Bat really meant Bat's Advanced Trader. So... And eventually we decided we just had to change the name and, and moved away. So since then, there hasn't been quite the same theme. Um, we try to give it a name which will give people an indication of the kind of use which it's going to be put. And our, our, our ideas change on that. So we've had Inner Zones and then we've had Macno recently. Macno is a river in North Wales that uh, leads into one of the 
uh, sections of white water, the Fairy Glen, um, Nine R's, Twelve R's, Scorch, which really evolved it out of the burn, and that evolved out of the H3, the H2, and that really goes back to the mountain bat days. So what goes into designing a new boat? How do you come up with a new design? Getting back to listening as much as anything else. We have our own ideas sometimes. Sometimes we can see a direction in which paddling skill is going. Sometimes it's connected with paddlers' aspirations. I mean, ultimately, we're there to help paddlers fulfill their dreams and their aspirations. So, you know, we look at what the leading paddlers are wanting to do. We, we look at where a recreation paddler, what he wants to do and, or aspire to do. Sometimes we like to buy things which are a little bit beyond our current skill level and we aspire to improving. So we try and target uh, a boat at a market or an aspiration. Sometimes we can see the way the technology is moving or the way it could move. So just at the moment on the Piranha side, um, a boat we're about to release is an extreme slalom version of the Ripper. So back in the 70s and 80s, we had 10 years winning the World Slalom Championships until we retired from that. And for the Paris Olympics, uh, extreme slalom is being introduced. And so we're very focused on building a extreme slalom specific version of the Ripper. Um, the Ripper was always designed as a river boat. It wasn't designed as an extreme slalom boat, but it's currently the fastest one out there, but we, can know, we know that we can make it faster. We know that we can make it more focused. And so we have this project. We're working with different members of different international teams, uh, predominantly the British team. That fortunately, it has just won the World Championships with Joe Clark. And so we're working with Joe and with the other paddlers to try to refine the design um, so that it saves second here, second there. Uh, and gives them the best possible chance for uh, for the Olympics in Paris. So how do you stay connected to the market and, and do that listening? Just go talk to people. You rely a lot on your team paddlers as well? Yes, but we rely on everybody. I mean, every, every communication that we have with paddlers at all level has an influence you know even complaints I mean probably we listen to complaints more than we listen to anything else because we're I'd like to think we're perfect but we're not so occasionally we get something wrong or or occasionally we'll listen to a podcast or someone will say something or or someone will, somebody will do a review of somebody else's boat and we'll look at it and go well oh, yeah, they've got something there we need to do something better Going back to my early days of racing, you know, I'm naturally a competitive beast and a number of us are competitive. And so, you know, we want to make the best. That's what we're here to do, to try and give people a better experience. 
as I say, it comes back to helping us fulfill their dreams. If, whether somebody wants to go and try to win an Olympic gold medal or whether they want to go on an expedition to the Arctic, just whatever their aspirations are, whether it's just going down the canal. You know, we want to try to help them have the best experience they can. And that listening to, uh, to complaints, that's a really important piece. That's, uh, that's definitely one to, to consider. It's not that you create a problem. It's how you respond to that problem that makes all the difference in the world. Absolutely. You know, and occasionally we make mistakes, but you have to learn from those mistakes. How long does it take to go from concept to the water? <laughs> that varies hugely. Uh, the fastest we ever did it was 10 days. Um, usually it takes months. So that 10 days, what prompted that to, to create a 10-day timeline? Again, it comes back to what I was talking about, safety. We had a, a concept boat called the Trix, which was a three-piece kayak. And again, from a safety perspective, we were trying to make the ends of the boat so that they would release. So if you got yourself stuck somewhere, you could release bow or the stern um, and hopefully that would help you float free of whatever obstruction you got yourself caught in. So we were having a little bit of problems with a couple of aspects and so the product was sat on the shelf for a couple of months and then we heard a rumour that um, uh, a German company were going to bring a new boat into the British market at what was a stupidly low price at the time and we knew we just had to respond to that and so we took the three-piece boat made it a one-piece boat reshaped quite a lot of it uh, and turned it into a boat called the attack uh, and i think from the minute we picked up the boat to start changing it to having it on the stand at the Crystal Palace exhibition it was 10 days. We pretty much worked night and day on that. And, uh, the mold wasn't uh, fully polished, but it was, uh, it was on the stand, so it took 10 days. You mentioned the slalom version of the Ripper, and that's, uh, yeah. that's coming up for the Paris Olympics. You're working on that to, for that. Yeah. Um, any other sneak peeks into what's next for Piranha and PH for, I guess I'll call it the, the mass market? Um, no, I can't tell you. Right. <laughs> I'll get, sh I'll get <laughs> shot. Um, we, we, we have... We, development is, is our lifeblood. You know, we're always developing things. We're always trying to make a product better. So we have... Um, for the mass market, a, a lovely little boat coming out in the spring. Other than that, I can't tell you anymore. All right. Well, we'll um, be looking forward to that. Yeah. So what's a day in the life of Graham McArath like? <laughs> you said we weren't going to talk about COVID very much. Um, right now, there's no such thing as a regular day. My day starts out typically just after 8 o'clock, uh, where I go into the what we call the glass shop, which is really the development shop, and go in there, see if my time is needed in there, just check that everything's heading in the right direction. Uh, and then I'll come up to the factory here, go for a short walk around the production area, make sure nobody's got any problems that I can help them with. Uh, and then it's into the office, 
talking to dispatch, talking to the sales team, talking to marketing, uh, just seeing how, you know, what's going on and just checking things through. And then I get to my diary, have a look at my diary and see what I've got myself committed for. There's usually some curveball here and there that, that sidetracks me in this process, particularly whilst, particularly this last two years or so. Yeah, so we're... Uh, this this episode is going to record or is going to air in early 2022. So just for mm-hmm. listeners' reference, uh, depending on when you're listening to this, we're coming through, uh, or still in, depending on how you're looking at it, a global pandemic from coronavirus. So what have you learned over the past couple of years um, in the manufacturing business, and how how is that going to affect you going forward? I don't know that I've really learned very much, other than I have a great team of people here. I think that's the biggest thing I've learned. Somebody told me many years ago that, and I'm, I say many years ago, I'm talking about the early 70s, just as I was starting, because Britain would go through an awful lot of recessions. There were all kinds of strikes going on, and every winter it seemed like either the coal miners were going to go on strike or the power stations were going on strike or somebody, something was always going on. Somebody was always going on strike and trying to hold the con- country to ransom. Um, but somebody told me that in times of recession, canoeing and kayaking does best. Also camping. And really meaning that in times of recession, people look for retained value. They don't look as much for a major foreign holiday or make a big purchase. The idea of buying a tent or a canoe or a kayak, you're buying a product which is going to cost you a little bit of money, but it's reusable. You get a long life out of it. You can have many experiences after your capital outlay. It's a very inexpensive sport. And that's the kind of thing that people look for in times of recession. So whilst we've been through this pandemic and we've had other financial recessions, you know, canoeing and kayaking does best. So I don't think I've learned anything, but it has certainly proven what I was told all those years ago. And, and I told everybody here when this pandemic started out that uh, we, were, we were in a lucky position relative to a lot of other people. Congratulations on uh, coming coming through that and uh, still working through that. So they say if your hobby becomes your work, it's never a hobby again. Do you get many chances to get out on the water? Yes. Oh, yes. I've never found that to be a particular problem, That I, although I can imagine that for some people that is the case. But you were telling me earlier on that you're from uh, Chicago. Yes. In 1979... I met a wonderful chap called Ralph Fries mm-hmm. from Chicago Land Canoe Base. And he asked me what I knew about John McGregor, who was really the Scot whose book A Thousand Miles in the Rob Roy of 1865 started the sport of recreation canoeing and kayaking and popularized it around the world. And I knew a little bit, uh, but not as much as he did. So he told me one or two things, and and um, he really excited my curiosity. And so, when I got back to the UK, I made it my business to uh, 
to see what I could find out. And I managed to buy a copy of a couple of McGregor's books. And that was a little while after uh, we'd sponsored uh, Mike Jones to go and do the first descent of Mount Everest by kayak in 76. And one of the team, uh, Dave Manby, was organising uh, a canoeing event. Uh, and he knew of my interest and he told me I needed to come and see this lady who was an owner of the uh, river just above Langlothlin in North Wales, where we wanted to go canoeing. And so we have different laws over here. You have to ask for uh, access uh, to rivers. And so I went to see this lovely old lady who was well into her 90s, sat by this fire in this Welsh farmhouse. And she says, oh, my grandfather was a bit of a canoeist. And he said, look, I've got some of his books here. And, uh, and there's a set of McGregor's books. This was McGregor's granddaughter. And so I had a wonderful chat to her. Um, and she suggested I got in touch with one of her relatives who was an antiquarian bookseller. And so I started collecting the books. And then soon after that, I found John McGregor's original Rob Roy uh, in Plessy Brennan, North Wales. And to save it from not getting scrapped, I, uh, I took it away. And I've, since then I've been, I don't like to use the word collecting, but whenever there's a boat that looks like it was in trouble that's got of historic consequence, uh, I've, I've uh, took it on. And so now I, have, now I have quite a lot of them. And so some of these got restored. Although, to come back to your original question, Although um, my sport and business are almost the same, I can manage to, to, to divorce the two from each other. So there is nothing I like more than getting in either one of our kayaks or one of my historic canoes and kayaks and just getting out on the water and going for a paddle. And I do find I can get away from all the pressures of my business life by just going to float. So I don't much mind while we're floating, <laughs> as long as I can spend as much time on the water as I possibly can. And so whether it's one of the historic boats or I take a sea kayak around North Wales, um, I love the Flint Peninsula and I love the coastline of Anglesey. Uh, we have some fabulous sea kayaking around here, some strong tidal flows from time to time, so it can make it quite exciting. and. Just wherever I go in the world, I just love to get out of the kayak. Do you prefer uh, white water or open water these days? I'm not, not fussed. I prefer it all. Okay. Just being afloat. Whatever strikes your fancy that day. That's it. Well, it depends where you are and who you're with. And um, So sometimes it's a nice peaceful day in an open canoe. Sometimes it's uh, an adventurous paddle in a sea kayak. Sometimes it's a bit of white water, although I'm not, I don't paddle much white water these days. I had a wonderful trip down the Grand Canyon a few years ago, uh, and since then I haven't really done that much. Do you have a favorite place that you've paddled? No. Okay. No, the world's full of wonderful places to go paddling. Uh, I can't say I've got a favorite. It depends on the kind of mood, I guess. Fair enough. 
You mentioned a boat collection, and I've heard you have quite an extensive boat collection of, uh, of historic boats. So tell us a little yes. bit about that. Well, as I said, it, it, it started with uh, Ralph. Um, and since then, I, I keep trying to decide whether I'm a collector or not, but I don't deliberately go out and collect. What I do is I fall over boats. And so sometimes they come, they usually come to me. Okay. <laughs> And I found that very few other people are, are really that interested in the history of canoes and kayaks, but some of them are wonderful pieces of, of craftsmanship and engineering. Some are fairly mundane, but some are just utterly beautiful. There was one sailing canoe built by Uffa Fox in about 1936 called Flying Fish that I was given. And so it sat around for a few years, and then one time I decided, right, it was time I gave it some tender, loving care. And so I took the decks off to restore it. And in there, I found it was built like a Stradivarius violin. Every joint was carefully designed to suit the stresses it was going to be under. So all the tenon joints were different. The spine of it tapered in every direction to save weight and to make sure that the it was uh, strong enough in the key areas. It was just a beautiful thing and it was a crying shame really to put the deck back on it um, but I did put the deck back on and I've sailed it quite a few times and it's a truly lovely boat. Some of the uh, over in Britain open canoes we tend to call Canadians because the majority came from Canada going back into the 1870s, 1880s. And one of the first successful exports was from John Stevenson before he sold the rights out to the Ontario Canoe Company in 1882 or 1883, I think. Um, but before then, he had an order for 50 boats, which he was extremely proud about them, and it uh, got a few column inches in the local press in uh, Peterborough. And so, and these were cedar, what we call cedar rib canoes. And so uh, I found a 17 foot version of this boat, which as a boat builder, I was extremely pleased to have this connection with this uh, amazing innovator of wooden canoe constructions. So I can't be sure, but I think you know, the date is 1880 from when this order for 50 were exported over here. And this would be one of the largest ones. And, and he also innovated the idea to stack canoes. So the 16 would fit inside the 17 and a 15 inside the 16 and a 14 inside the 15, etc. By taking the decks off and the gunnel and the, uh, the thwarts. And so they would just be reassembled when when they got to the UK. And then I found a clinker racing kayak, 22 foot long, 22 inches wide, that um, after a while I've traced back and I believe it predates even McGregor. And that, that'll be the world's oldest racing kayak. And then I got one from a few years later when kayaking was following the rowing tradition and it was just built from one layer of one eighth inch cedar, which is the same length 
but only 19 inches wide and weighs 22 pounds. And that was built all those years ago. So then I've got a number of folding kayaks. Some are bought, some have been given. Collection of racing kayaks through the 50s, 60s, 70s. So there's about a, there's about a hundred something of them <laughs> now. Um, and they're just beautiful objects. I suppose sometimes your, your hardest decision is to figure out which one to take out. Uh, it can be. <laughs> it's certainly uh, as of when I retire <laughs> uh, it, it will uh, consume uh, quite a few years trying to get that lot sorted out but it's uh, there are some wonderful boats there and, uh, and you can read into it people's aspirations very often you know you can see what they were trying to achieve and how they set about trying to do it with the technology that they had available to them at the time. But they're very beautiful things. Yeah, works of art, for sure. Yeah, exactly. They are. You mentioned earlier um, sponsoring expeditions. I know that uh, through your companies, you've sponsored a number of expeditions uh, around the world. Anything, uh, anything particular coming up? Um, not particularly at the moment. You know, the dip, well, if we talk about Everest in 76, you know, then it was an expedition because the only way that they could get the boats to Nepal was to was to get someone to lend them a van and a very large roof rack on it and drive out. You know, these days, you know, you fly everywhere unless you're going really up into the Arctic or into one or two extreme parts of the world. You know, it's not an expedition like it used to be. So. The far easier to achieve than it, than it used to be. So, seacat wise, no, I haven't heard, I haven't had anybody apply for help for some time. And my water is a completely different beast to what it was in the days of Mike Jones. So, how can listeners reach you if they've got additional questions? Well, they could just get in touch with me through Piranha. Uh, so, um, whether it's Piranha or PH, if they just write into Piranha and ask for it to be forwarded on to me, um, I'll be very happy to hear from them. Um, and you know, we do take all all the uh, inquiries that we get very seriously. Uh, we do get a lot, so you know, we hope to get back to you pretty quickly. But if you've got any thoughts, any ideas, Anything you'd like to see in terms of a design of a kayak or fittings, please forward it through to me because it, sooner or later, when we do collect these things together and sooner or later we'll regurgitate it into something which hopefully you'll uh, enjoy using. Well, always listening to make the best boats possible. So Absolutely. We, we appreciate that. So one final question that I have for you, Graham, and that is, that's a question that we ask of all of our guests on the show here, and that is, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? Well, my suggestion would be a wonderful chap called Douglas Wilcox. Douglas is a tremendous individual, very into his sea kayaking, but particularly into sea kayak sailing, and is really the leading aficionado on the subject. Excellent. Well, I will connect with you offline and we'll, uh, we'll talk about getting uh, contact information for uh, Douglas Wilcox and see if we can have the opportunity to get him on the show as well. 
It has been wonderful uh, learning from you, listening, uh, listening to you, and learning about the history of paddle sports uh, and learning about the history of Piranha and P&H and, and your involvement in the sports and, uh, and your continuous listening process to always make the best boats possible. So we certainly appreciate it as paddlers. Um, I know I mentioned this to this earlier. I'm a proud uh, P&H owner myself. I've got two of them hanging on the wall just uh, outside my studio. And then also looking to add a Piranha boat in the, uh, to the fleet in the future. So we'll be work, working on that as well. But thank you very much, and I appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed, John. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or white water, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. Who knew that I inspired a trophy? I tried Googling it, but I couldn't find a single reference, so I guess my inspiration was pretty short-lived. We're certainly glad that Graham chose boat building over being an accountant and for his relentless pursuit of building the best boats possible. Personally, from the interview, I found the development of the really unique safety features quite interesting. At the beginning of today's episode, I promised a question for our two-year anniversary. So today's question is going to be an easy one. It's actually right from this very episode. So here we go. What was the translation of the name of the Piranha boat that made the German team laugh? So once again, what was the translation of the name of the Piranha boat that made the German team laugh? To get your answer in, visit www.paddlingtheblue.com, go to this episode's page, and get your answer in by Wednesday, March 9, 2022. And then we'll announce the winner in episode 56, which releases March 14, 2022. Our next episode is going to take us to Iceland, where we're going to have a talk with Goodney Paul Victorson. Goodney Paul shares his circumnavigation of the rugged Icelandic coastline in that episode. So thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.